Welcome. This is Carol Sanford. I am the host for the Responsible Entrepreneur podcast. Here we work on bringing together the idea of doing business with actually changing the course of history. We have many different podcasts from different entrepreneurs. Plus, you can read the book, The Responsible Entrepreneur, and get another 15 stories and a great deal of depth. One of the questions that I most often ask about entrepreneurship when I'm speaking about my book, The Responsible Entrepreneur, is can there really be an entrepreneur inside of a company? Is that possible? Aren't they all people who go found and drive their own business? And I say, no, actually entrepreneurship is a way of seeing the world and anyone can do it. But what I mean by that is the worldview you have and the capability that has to be built in you or you have to keep building in yourself is probably more accurate is what is required to make sure it could happen. I have several of those stories in the book, and I have a few podcasts, which you're going to hear one of today, about the internal entrepreneurship. But I'd like to set the stage for that with three of the principles that I believe are behind entrepreneurship, whether it's internal, whether it's external, whether it's a not-for-profit, or whether it's in parenting. All of these have to do with creating a, a child, an employee, a business that can make a difference, in fact, change the course of history. So the three I want to talk about today is first, personal agency. One of the things that we undermine and in fact diminish repeatedly in this society is a person, starting with a child, having a sense of their own sense of agency, their own sense of being able to make something happen. And of course it drives us nuts when they're children. I have a granddaughter who's almost four, I know what that's like. When they feel like they're the top of the heap, top of the food chain, and they're exercising the agency to discover they can impact the world. But if they can't do that, they can't do it later either. And if what we do is continuously diminish that first in parenting, then in the schools where someone else tells them what to do, how to do, and when to do it, and then in business where you have supervision, which diminishes the personal agency, then you are actually eroding and in fact killing the core most foundational piece of entrepreneurship. There are a few businesses which have started up that way and then begin to lose it. The challenge is how do you keep it alive? Uh, And you're gonna hear from one person today who will give us a little hint of that. The second criteria, or I guess I'd call it a principle really, is building, and it's related to personal agency, but it's building in the idea of internal locus of control. The personal agency can be kind of scattered if it's not, Uh, connected to, I have a choice about how I do things. I have uh, the ability to maintain control, to choose what will work, what won't work. Uh, I take accountability for whatever the outcome is, whether it's extraordinary or whether it is something I'm embarrassed by. Believe me, I know about that one. You just pay attention to where are you placing the control? I had a conversation yesterday with a young man who's looking at joining one of my communities, and he said, Uh, He was describing to me what he does for a living, and all of it was teaching people how to coach other people and give them feedback on things they couldn't see. And I said to him, do you know you're actually making it more difficult for them to do that? And he said, why? I said, because we know now, and I did quite a bit of research on this myself when I was working on my doctorate, I discovered that the more often you gave people feedback, the less able they were to see themselves. 
In my work and in the communities I build, I teach people how to coach in a way they never give people an idea that they tell them is true. They may give them questions. They may say, well, I don't know if it's me. It's kind of like happens like this. But the idea of having people feel they are in control of the outcomes they produce, they can see them, they can learn to see themselves, is a very, very fundamental piece of being entrepreneurial. The third thing, not, this isn't the only three, but these are three what I consider the building blocks of entrepreneurship. If you want to really throw responsibility into it and not have it just become greed-driven, because if you think about these first two, if you only focused on personal agency and I'm in control of my life, you can end up down a track that um, is very extractive of other people's lives. So to me, this third one is a very important one, which is creating an external considering relationship, thinking about your impact on others, not only just noticing it, but choosing to act in a way that you improve the lives of all that you touch, that there's a ripple effect of improvement of life, of life-giving qualities as things move out. Often we split these three things apart. So we have a group of people who are working on external considering. They're working on climate change, they're working on education, but they come at it from a very low sense of internal locus of control. They feel like they have to demand that other people uh, change without themselves changing. They have a sense of they can't do anything about it, so they may join in a group that puts pressure, creates legislation, and that's all they're doing. If you don't combine the strong sense of personal agency, I can make a difference with I take responsibility for whatever it is I create, coupled with I want to work on things that can really change the course of history and make a difference, then you don't have what I would call the three, three-legged stool of entrepreneurship. You're going to hear from somebody who will describe to you how that happens at Google. David Thau is a part of Google Maps, and I met him as a part of the, uh, the Innovation Lab for Food Experience. He's quite an extraordinary man, and he's done great things that I ask him about. Hi, David. I am so glad to have you with me today. Would you please introduce yourself to the folks who uh, will be following up on the podcast and any of the other material that we have, and give them just a little context for who you are and how you're here today. Hi, Carl. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, my name is Dave Thau. I work at Google, where my title is Developer Advocate. Um, developer Advocates uh, work with developers who are building tools on top of Google platforms. Um, in particular, I, I work with the Geo Group, so Google Earth, Google Maps, Street View, um, and I'm focusing on a tool that lets people analyze um, satellite data and other Earth observation data um, to address things like deforestation and crop yields and water loss. Which is why I got obviously so excited about you and what you do. Uh, could you give just a little more of that story? Because I think the nature of people who listen to my podcast, that's the story that will most excite them. Sure. So uh, the tool that I work on is called Google Earth Engine. And it's something that we're putting in the hands of researchers and NGOs and other organizations who would like to, to analyze um, Earth observation data. Uh, the challenge there is that there's an awful lot of data. Um, satellites have been collecting information since 1972, and this is all in public data repositories, but they're very hard to use. And it's so much data that almost nobody can really access it all. Um, so we consider this to be a Google scale problem, um, getting access to all the data 
and enabling it for analysis in an in a easy way for people who want to ask questions. Um, so what we've done is we've created a way for researchers like, um, for instance, there's a person, Matt Hansen at the University of Maryland, who want to do things like study global forest loss and gain. And so he's able to use the system to analyze an, over a decade of satellite imagery to find out um, where forest has been lost and where forest has been gained over that period of time. And does this move into policy discussions in countries or uh, strategy discussions in businesses? Do you know where it goes after all of that work is done? Yeah, that's, that's the most exciting thing is um, what we really want to do is bring science out of the lab and into operation and into policy and decision making. And we're working um, with organizations to take this information that's generated um, using our system and put it in the hands of policy makers and decision makers. And the main way we've been doing that is by working with uh, NGOs, other third parties who take the data, they have the connections in government and to the policymakers, and then they can create tools that are tailored. So a good example is uh, the World Resources Institute took the Matt Hansen data, which I mentioned, plus other force-related data, and um, created something called Global Forest Watch, and you can see that at globalforestwatch.org. And that's a tool that combines all these data in a sort of a easy to access way uh, and is available to anybody who wants to go to the site and look at it. But because the World Resources Institute has close ties to uh, industry and government, um, they can reach out to those folks, show them the tool, make sure it works for them, and, and help them use it. And they are, they're being successful in that. So there are examples of being used um, by the Indonesian government to monitor forest loss, for example. So one of the things that everyone gets excited about Google, or at least we have an image of it, is that you get to be involved in choosing what your work is and what the work is done. Would you give us just a little bit of background on how did your work get defined in Google? Uh, you know, and how, how do you... I guess you'd say make sure that it's really making a difference because that is one of the drivers that I have heard repeated by your co-founders. Could you speak just a little bit to that? Uh, yeah, definitely. The, the, I came to Google specifically to work on this project. It spoke to me in so many different ways. And the moment uh, I heard about it, I knew that I wanted to work on it. Um, it's a project that fits very well in with Google's mission. Um, which is to make the uh, world's information universally uh, accessible and useful. Um, this is making geospatial information accessible and, and useful. And it really, you know, it ties into what Google is trying to do. It, in uh, the Google geo world of, you know, maps and, and Earth, there's kind of a informal mission statement, which is to help make the world's most perfect map. Uh, and what we're doing with Earth Engine contributes to that as well, where we're able to analyze so much data to help give new, a new vision of the status of the Earth now um, and in the past. And the, the relevance of what I'm doing comes through this process of working with scientists and researchers and experts to um, ensure that the way that the data are analyzed is scientifically valid and then work with uh, th other third parties like NGOs um, to bring that data out of the lab 
Um, since that's so key to what our the mission of my project is, I don't have a problem uh, feeling like what I'm doing is relevant. And, and in particular, my job, um, which is to work with the scientists and the NGOs to bring the science and the decision-making tools you know, public, um, I'm in a great position to feel relevant you know, every single day. Do you have to make choices um, about a way of working things or an amount of time or a direction in order to stay consistent or at least connected to the strategy and mission? I mean, I'm assuming there are a million ways you could work on this. How, how do you sort and choose how you're going to work on something? So it's a good question. There are um, constant check-ins uh, where we state what our objectives will be for a certain period of time and how we'll measure the, su the, the success of reaching those objectives. Um, so this, this happens just constantly. There's constant feedback about whether the objectives you're setting are good uh, and whether you're in fact reaching them. It's to a very, very large extent self-driven. Um, so I'm in charge of coming up with my own objectives. My manager is in charge of making sure those objectives are in line with the broader objectives of the company. Um, so it's a constant conversation to make sure that what I'm doing fits in with the context of the company, but it really is mostly different from me. And I think that's true of, of most people that I'm with. You mentioned this earlier. You have to set your own goals and then figure out how you're going to measure when you're getting there. The kind of things you're doing are globally impactful. They are multiply impactful, not just one thing. How do you measure? How do you set measures? Or could you give us an example of how you think about measuring your own effectiveness? That's a great question. Um, there are a couple of ways that we measure success. Um, there are, it, it, this is a big problem with any kind of, well, actually, any project that's trying to have an impact on societal or environmental benefit has challenges uh, measuring their success. Just because when your problems are global, there's so many things impacting uh, what you're working on that it's hard to pinpoint your own uh, contribution. You know, if you create a system that helps curb illegal logging, and in fact, illegal logging is curbed, how much is, of that is due to your system and how much of that is due to local law enforcement or just a change in the economy driving down you know, the utility of the logs. Um, so it's hard, to, it's hard to tell. What we do is we measure very uh, focused metrics, things like how many people are using our system, um, how many papers are published using our system, how many PhDs are uh, achieved because they used what we've built. So those are very easy to compute numbers. Uh, we have uh, a bulletin board where people discuss how they're using Earth Engine and we can measure how many people are conversing, how many are helping each other, how dynamic is the community. Uh, these are also things that are, are easy to measure. Uh, the things that are more difficult to measure are things like, you know, is illegal logging being curbed? Uh, are we able to uh, improve crop yields without increasing damage to the environment, that kind of thing. For that, we rely a lot on the NGOs um, and policymakers that we're working with who tell us um, the impact 
that they're having because they're able to use our tools. And we rely on their metrics. So we, you know, we're constantly in contact with them saying, how's it going? Uh, has, have, do you feel like your mission has been aided with this tool and how so? So a lot of it's kind of survey research. You're able to see indicators. I mean, the indicators like how many people are using it, how many publish papers, how many apply it in their uh, doctoral dissertations or probably master's thesis too. Those are indicators. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges in the world you're in and the world I'm in, where we're seeking to make a very big difference right, with uh, very focused, targeted efforts, is to know what kind of indicators. Do you have a way you try and talk with your NGOs and scientists about how they're measuring? I, I mean, I'm trying to ask a question. It's very hard to answer, but uh, I thought I may as well try, see if we can get somewhere with it. How, like, how do you determine whether an indicator is more than simple? And I always say, I want indicators that help you care, not just count. They improve caring, not just counting. And indicators to me are the things that you would say how it would tell us whether it's improving caring. Does, does that make any sense to you? Or? It does. Uh, and so one of the ways that we do that is um, we have project uh, at various levels of, um, I guess you would say, generality. Uh, so at the most general, we have these global products um, that analyze Earth data. At the um, most local level, we work with um, specific groups of people who are impacted and can use our tools to help address some issue that they're having. So an example of that is uh, we've worked with the... Um, the Surui tribe in uh, in Brazil. Um, they're a group of indigenous people. They were um, they've been um, sort of known by the West since the 70s, uh, and they are trying to protect their uh, ancestral land uh, over which they have sovereignty. Uh, and one of the things that they're encountering is uh, incursions by loggers onto their property, and they're trying to um, cut that, and they also want to be able to have sustainable livelihoods, uh, but they don't want to uh, damage the forest. So what we've been doing is working with them to help use uh, tools to uh, report on uh, the state of their forests, and they're actually able to use some of the, the things that we've helped them with to create uh, carbon credits, which they've sold um, on the carbon market, and the money that they get from selling these carbon credits uh, is sustaining their, their livelihood and is letting it, making it able for them to continue to preserve their forest. Um, so in terms of looking at outcomes that uh, really drive caring, it's that kind of thing where we're working with local communities um, to, to directly address their, their needs. So I, I love that one because you talked about the NGOs and the people who use it, but you're talking about people who use your work in a really direct life impacting way that has a really strong way to, to have indicators that would promote. I mean, me hearing about that, it makes me care. It makes me hopeful. And it also makes me, I think I remember, and you may tell me I don't remember this when I heard one of your talks at Google, that you talked about ways I made choices about how I engaged with Google that supported that. Or there are ways where I, as a user of Google, become impactful 
in either helping tell your story. I mean, tell me and all the listeners if there's something we can do which help those stories move along and we can make a difference. One thing we do is we work we work with these NGOs to help get their stories out. One example is we work with the Jane Goodall Institute, uh, who are trying to preserve the population of uh, chimpanzees uh, in the world. They, you know, they're trying to. The population is is diminishing um, due to uh, loss of habitat among other things, and they're doing their best to preserve um, the the existing population and hopefully grow it. Um, We've been working with them uh, to uh, help them monitor the areas where chimps are active. Um, and we've also been working with them to get their story out. Uh, and we talk about that on our site. So there's a site called um, Earth Outreach. There's a group called Earth Outreach, which is uh, within Google. It's sort of a sister group to what I work with. Um, and if you go to the Earth Outreach site, if you just search on Google Earth Outreach, you'll find it. You can find stories of uh, different NGOs and efforts that we've been um, working with and promoting and helping along, and each of those has a call to action. Uh, you know how you can help those organizations. So that's that's one way. One of the things that um, I hear behind how you talk, and I'd like for you to make more explicit, are principles you use to make choices. So, for example, you made a choice to leave the media and go much more into helping scientists. I suspect that there is a principle which was either implicit or formulated, which began to guide how you make choices. And as you moved into this choice here at Google with this project, you made a choice about the options. Plus, choosing to uh, teach at Mills College, which I find very exciting, and I Fletcher students were amazing when you know I got to engage with them a bit, but. I would really love to hear you articulate what goes on in your head, you know, kind of maybe your head and your heart, that are principle-based deciders, the ability to make choices. Can you articulate any of that? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is I want to make positive change in the world. So I want whatever I'm doing to have a positive impact and as large a positive impact as I possibly can have. I'm pretty aware of the skills that I have. Um, and so in wanting to make positive change, I think about what I can do. And I, I, what I can do is really leverage what other people are doing. Um, so I'm not going to be the world's greatest um, remote sensing satellite expert. And I'm not going to be the world's greatest biologist, um, but I'm a pretty good computer scientist, and and I have a good way of uh, working with people and and helping them tell their stories. And I've done lots of that through um, teaching and through the work I've done throughout my whole life. So when I just try to decide what I'm going to do, first I want I make sure that it's going to have a positive impact. Then I make sure that I'm leveraging the right people and organizations to help me do that. And a lot goes into figuring out just who those people are and which those organizations are. And a lot of decisions that I make are around kind of judging how much impact this person or this organization will be able to have if I help enable them. So those are, those are the main drivers. Uh, and it has to be something I'm interested in. 
if I'm not interested in it, I'm terrible at it. I'm extremely bimodal that way. If, if I'm working on something that I just don't find impactful or meaningful to me, I just cannot do it. So I'm very aware of that as well. And I, you know, actively avoid anything that doesn't seem like it's going to be interesting to me, which I'm lucky enough to sort of have those choices. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I do is when I'm faced with a decision between things that I that both seem good to me and it's hard to decide, um, one thing I try to do is pull myself out of the decision and try to read it like it's a novel and try to figure out which character I would admire more, the one who did decision A or the one who did decision B. And, and, and I try to abstract myself as much as possible and think, if I were to read this book, you know, who would I respect more? Who would I admire more? And I think about it for a while and then I go on that decision. I would like to hear just a little bit about your upbringing. Like, what was the, the milieu or, you know, the womb in which you grew up that you feel like nourished and seeded who you are? Like a little bit about like what your parents' role was, whether you had siblings, what uh, locations and so forth. Could you give us, and mostly how it relates to who you think you are now? So my, yeah, I think a lot comes down to my, my parents. Uh, my father was an electrical engineer. He didn't work on computers so much, but he worked on communications equipment. Uh, and he was very technically able and definitely encouraged my sister and uh, myself to, in, to study math and science. And my mother was an educator. She taught uh, in grade school and in uh, junior high. And my father liked to teach as well. Uh, so I think, and we were brought up thinking that, being taught that teaching was one of the most important things you can do. Uh, and that was really a, kind of a theme while I was growing up. My father didn't like his work very much, uh, and he didn't talk about it. He tells a story about how uh, he was in high school given a naval exam to figure out what your skill set was. And the, his results came back and told him that he could do whatever he wanted as long as it didn't have to do with spatial reasoning, um, which is a key trait you need to be a good engineer. So he decided to become an engineer. And he was a fine engineer. He did, he did great, but I don't think he enjoyed it very much. And he would come home from work not very happy. And I learned, uh, based on that, to not go into work that didn't make me happy. Uh, and so that really drove me to always make sure that whatever jobs I was taking were things that I was going to enjoy. because I realize at that point how much time you spend in your work. So I think the, the engineering side from my dad and the education side from my mom really helped bring out those, those focuses in me. And we, I was born in New York City, but we moved to kind of a rural part of Long Island when I was young. And we had woods that I would go through every day. And we were kind of isolated from where we were. We didn't, I didn't have any neighbors because I had to go through the woods to get to them. And uh, so I had a lot of time kind of wandering around there. I really enjoyed that. And then when, when we moved to California, uh, that's when I learned about the national parks in, in California. We went to Yosemite and I just, I fell in love. And as soon as I could get myself a new place, I went to Yosemite as often as I could. And I ended up working there for a, a little bit as a, a maid, which was very eye-opening experience. Uh, but I went to Yosemite all the time. And I think that's what really drove my uh, my love of nature. The last formal question I have, unless we get led to something else, is 
the thing for me about being a responsible entrepreneur when you're inside is you have a belief somehow that one person's life can make a difference. You clearly have that. You behave that way. And, you know, you can even hear it a bit in your family upbringing about how I believe you were encouraged that way, or at least you took away the lessons that way. If you spoke to the idea of can one person make a difference and how do you have to pursue your life in order to that be the case uh, to make that difference with your one, as Mary uh, Oliver, the poet says, with your one crazy and meaningful life. Yeah, one person definitely can make a difference. I think you're always making a difference. It's, the question is, are you making the difference that you want to be making? Um, and I think to, to make sure that happens, you have to really stay focused on what you find important um, and actively work on those things. Uh, one of the challenges of working at Google is there are so many interesting things going on all the time that it's easy, I think, to get distracted. Uh, and so you have to be really kind of you know, vicious about your uh, focus and really pay a lot of attention uh, to prioritizing those things that uh, will help you reach the goals that you're interested in, in reaching. So it takes a lot of you know, knowledge of yourself what you find important, awareness of, of how to promote those things, and then willingness to sort of push other things aside. Um, one of the other nice things about um, Google as a place is it is extremely transparent. Um, the, the interactions that you have with people are, are constant. Um, Any time that you want to do anything, you're really encouraged to get input from everybody around you. Um, there's a peer review process, um, so you're you're constantly interacting with people and and making sure um, that what you're doing is really moving along the you know, the mission of the group. Um, but because there's so much interaction, everybody knows what everybody else is doing, and it's so it's easy to to be aware of where people are focusing. And I think that comes from the sort of constant communication and, and transparency. Um, you know, nothing is hidden. Nobody is really hard to work alone in a corner somewhere and not have people know what you're doing, which means that it's easier um, for you to have an impact because you're strongly encouraged to constantly be communicating about what you're doing. And it's easier to get the support you need. People will find things that they think you might not know about and bring it to you, right? I mean, it's a living culture of supporting one another's creativity and innovation for Google. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a knowledge economy. You know, how yeah. much, it's, what do you know, what can you share, how effective are you at sharing the knowledge that you have and accumulating more of it? Um, that's, that's really a huge sort of way of measuring success here. That's great. Well, David, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I love knowing you and continuing watching you as you're moving along to take on new roles in Google and new ways of contributing. So uh, thanks, and we may have people who will have questions. I'll pass those along to you and see if they're answerable by email, and we'll see if we can follow up with anything that people really want to know more about.
David, the first time I heard you speak, I was so inspired. You gave me so much hope. There were things I had no idea that people were working on, especially as an individual contributor at that point. You've since now are managing a group of people. But as an individual contributor, you were making a huge difference from your own personal agency, from your own sense of internal locus of control on things that I care deeply about and had no idea how to affect. So thank you for sharing yourself and letting me share you with the world. If you would like to see more of the conversation that I had with David, you can again go to uh, my Vimeo site, Carol Sanford, and you can probably even search for David's name there and give you more of an idea. Plus, if you want more connection with more responsible entrepreneurs, follow this podcast. You can go to our RSS feed on seed-communities.com. I think you also can get it off of um, carolsanford.com. We will continue to bring these to you. You can find more of the how to do all of this in two ways. One is buying my books, The Responsible Business. The second one, The Responsible Entrepreneur. And looking at our seed communities and how you might join or participate in one of those. Again, seed seed-communities.com. And of course, keep joining us here on the Responsible Entrepreneur Podcast. See you next time.